I had a therapist tell me once, it was ironic how much love I gave out because I didn't give much to myself. She laughed like self-love was a sick joke. I chuckled and cried at home. I had someone tell me once I could not love anyone else until I learned to love myself. This time I got to laugh. This time the sick joke was mine, it was me. Might as well wait forever. Hello and welcome to Just Talk, Educational Equity, the podcast about social justice and how it relates to everything education. I'm your host, Tony Neal. And I'm today's co-host, Deborah Bullman. Today's episode is about healing for healers. To lead off, we're listening to a spoken word performance by Nail Jones of a piece called Healing. Let's finish listening to the rest of Nail's performance, which is posted on YouTube's Slam Fine channel. Her performance of this poem has almost 1.5 million views. I remember hating myself at the age of seven. Journals spilled to the brim with criticisms by eight. I had enough pages to stitch them into wings, to fly close enough to the sun to see my tears turn to steam, felt the wax burn on my shoulders and mold into thick skin. I was nine when I wanted to die. Thirteen when I found a solution, figured if I could cut my legs enough, gravity would let me go. When it didn't, I tied a pillowcase around my neck, twisting like the rope swings I knew so well from childhood. Heard my heartbeat pound in my ears like a warning drum, then fade. I'd almost convinced myself I'd done it. When I started writing, I smeared my blood on every page to remind myself that everything beautiful has a consequence. I'd hope to stall the clotting long enough to give myself to the craft and let myself go. I have died so many times. So when I told you that loving you almost makes life worth it, I was not joking. When I tell you that loving you almost makes me forget how much I hate myself, it is not poetry. Loving you is taking all the love I could never give myself and putting it to good use. It is reminding myself that if someone can love a dying thing this way, can hold the Lazarus of my body and give thanks for the way it holds back, if someone can kiss the scars, administer the pills, absorb the bad days and wake up smiling next to me, then I can try to breathe again. Because self-love does not always come first, or second, or even ever. But your love be the guardrail on the ledge, be the drawers that hide all the sharp things, be the body that carries my collapsed frame into bed, be the flowers you bought. Because even though they are dying too, they still dance. Love will not heal me, will not wipe my slate of a body clean. I will always be a woman of wounds, of rope-marked neck and melted skin. Love will not heal me, but it will hold my hand if I ever heal myself and maybe teach me a joke that I can stay alive long enough to laugh at. I love you enough to want to love myself too. How about that for a testament to healing? That was pretty moving. When I'm listening to her deliver this piece, and um, when you watch it on YouTube, you can see the power of this also. But when you listen, you can hear her moving on through her tears and that the tears can come and can remain with her even as she's moving forward into her wisdom, into her understanding, into the next steps in her life. 
Yeah, what it kind of reminds me of in our training, we often speak of healing and uh, people often get emotional with some of the messages that are narratives that uh, take place in our training. And we say those are healing tears. We say that it's even made up of a different type of chemistry. You know, so often when individuals are crying, we want to reach for that tissue or we want to comfort them to say it's okay, as opposed to letting them be in that space and really feel deeply whatever is coming up. Uh, Tears are really a, a form of discharge, and discharge is good. And so, you know, we encourage the tears, and, and I could see, feel, and hear all of that emotion at once as uh, she was reading the poem. One of the things I also liked about this was she specifically referenced using her writing as a way of expressing her pains and her challenges and her hurts. She talked about um, writings, you know, in journals, starting from the ages of a young child, calling the saying she filled up a book with pages as wings. Right, right. Yeah. And I just, um, and you can see for her that also that process of being engaged of that, of, of putting that down on paper, of bringing it to an audience. You can hear how the audience is moved by her expressions, that that's part of her healing journey. Yeah, absolutely. I remember when I was a principal and some of the students had some struggles. Uh, they had experienced trauma, and we would often encourage students to write just to journal. And uh, journaling doesn't necessarily have to be writing. It could be drawing pictures. It could be creating a song. It, you know, it could be some of uh, a number of different ways of being creative um, that can be kind of put in a book form, if you will. And even as adults, I sometimes encourage um, some of my friends and those that I come across in some of our trainings to, to journal and just to kind of take note of where you are in this space and time. Uh, what are you feeling? What are you thinking? Well, Nao Jones really embodies that, and I would encourage anyone to uh, take a look at her piece. Again, it's called Healing. You find it on the Slam Find channel on YouTube. Oh, great, great, great. So, Deb, um, a couple things that I kind of gleaned from the the poem of Nao is a sense of belonging, a sense of feeling valued. So when was there a time in your early years that you really felt like you belonged, that you were valued, uh, that I cannot do without Deb or someone cannot do be without uh, Deb's presence or voice? Oh, that's something kind of beautiful to think about. I remember... I was really close to um, the other people in my class when I was in elementary school. Um, I went to a small parochial school, and we had the same class of about 30 people, and we stayed together, you know, first grade through eighth grade with a few people coming in or leaving maybe every once in a while. But we were very close to each other. And in eighth grade, we had a play. We did Our Town, and I was Mrs. Gibbs. Wow, I remember our town. I was in our town. You yes, were? yes, yes. I don't even remember what I played, but I remember doing the play. Yeah. Oh man, it's one of those classics and our town really is about that concept too. Yes. That each one of us is important and each one of us lives a life that has beauty and and truth to it. And um just having a role like that and seeing each person have their individual role. I, I didn't go on in drama at all, but that 
really um, was a very joyful experience. Right, right. How about you, Tony? When did you know you belonged, that you were essential as Tony? Well, you know, I can I go back to my early uh, school years. Um, basically, I grew up in a little town called Bryan, Texas. And uh, I recall going to a, a, a private school, St. Joseph. I think it was a, actually it was a Catholic school. And uh, I'm kind of giving you the sense of uh, when I came to a point of feeling like I didn't belong, and then I moved into a space where I felt like I belonged, mm-hmm. uh, and it really felt good. But in that Catholic school, I was the first uh, African-American male student to integrate that school. And it was really a hard space to be in because I wasn't accepted. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, that's back in the... Um, 70s, you know, and it's down in the deep south. Uh-huh. And, you know, there was a lot of hard feelings. And so when I left that school, uh, finally, after two years and my parents realized that it wasn't the best place for me to be, I went into a space where I, it was just transformation. It was like I was accepted. I felt valued. I felt like I was important, that I belonged there. Uh, so that was kind of my experience around, you know, belonging. Mm-hmm. Yeah how important it is to have peers and people that believe in you and accept you yeah. as who for who you really are. Absolutely. And seeing mirrors of yourself. You right. know, every place I look, there were people that looked like me. Uh, there were people that uh, embraced me. You know, there were other, there were people's pictures on the bulletin boards and then the books that I read that all that looked like me that said, hey, you're in the right place. Oh, I can really see how that has informed your practice even now. Thank you. Thank you. time to transition to our deep dive for today. In previous episodes of Just Talk, we were discussing trauma-sensitive practices centered on student needs around learning and respect for students' experiences. Today's deep dive is about respecting the experiences of adults in doing social justice work, recognizing that the work can be painful and traumatizing, and focusing on healing theory and practice. Black freedom at any cost is a sentiment Brittini Gray holds true as a master strategist who creatively works to heal communities from trauma. Brittini's lifelong commitment to the liberation of black people is pursued unapologetically. A native of the west side of Chicago, St. Louis has become her second home. Awarded an MLK Humanitarian Award at the age of nine, she is a collaborator at heart, co-creating, co-leading, and co-founding dozens of community-based projects over the past decade. Welcome, Brittini. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, to start off, will you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, you have quite a list of accomplishments. I know you from the work that you've done in the community and uh, the respect that the community at large has for all that you are representing, all that you're about. But tell us a little bit in your voice about yourself. Um, Yes, I've been here in St. Louis. It'll be seven years this summer. Uh, Came here originally to um, work as a community organizer. Stayed because I started to work on my master's in theology um, and then got really involved in the uprising and really um, kind of came into healing work, just reflecting on my own process um, as an organizer and feeling burnt out, um, going through my own uh, mental break through the stresses of the work. 
and just really realizing that we don't have enough supports um, organizationally or institutionally for the people who are consistently engaged in the work, as well as just our community at large. And so now I spend my time um, mostly over at Empower Institute working with a brilliant team of people who understand the need to attend to both core and conditions, as Rebecca Bennett would put it. Oh, yes, yes, absolutely. And we are beyond blessed to have you right here in the St. Louis area. I mean, I know your work stretches far beyond the walls of St. Louis, but uh, we just like having you Right here is thank one of you. our own, so thank you. thank you. We have much, uh, so much to talk about on this topic of healing. Why don't we start by hearing uh, how you would describe your work in promoting healing and how, um, how did you come to even be in this, this uh, role or want to do this work? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I talk about healing justice as the work that I'm engaged in as a growing field in movement spaces that has been especially highlighted by um, the movement for black lives over the past five years and really it's about how are we not only like attending to people's well-being after um, something has happened but in the midst of the work. So how are we shaping our meetings to be a place where people feel safe? How are we cultivating actions in a way that um, not only disrupts, but also points towards wholeness for the community? How are we um, making sure that we have grief rituals and spaces for people to process community violence as it's happening on a daily basis? Because uh, all of these things are continuing like traumatic events. It's not as if trauma, unfortunately, for black folks, especially in this country, happens once and then it's just an event that lives in the past. It's an ongoing um impact that we have to live with and so understanding that trauma is ongoing we have to also have ongoing supports for it mm-hmm. what would you um say are some of those processes or some of those practices that um, you've been able to experience that have been useful in in recognizing the need to go through to a healing space and a more healing experience Mm -hmm. what are some of those things specifically that Mm -hmm. you've um, helped people put into play Yeah, so healing circles are kind of something I use frequently and healing circles can look a lot of different ways. For me, that's about creating a space that is sacred. Often there um, is an altar involved in my healing circles where we can be reminded of that which is sacred in a way that you know we're calling on ancestors or folks who um, we love in our lives and having them be intimately present even in our memory. I think it's also about having a space where people can reflect and just talk about what they have experienced and then have that affirmed from other people's experience. Um, And unfortunately, we don't get that a lot. We see that most of the times people are in spaces where um, those type of conversations are shut down. Um, or told to, you know, be discussed somewhere else as if they are not actually part of, like, the work. And so that's a big piece of it. I do a lot of work around 
somatics, um, aromatherapy. Um, as part of the Black Healers Collective, we try to make sure that we have multiple healing modalities from acupuncture and a massage to yoga. Um, so really just having a breadth of um, healing modalities present for people to be able to access, not um, something that has to be reserved for like middle or upper class folks, but something that everyday people can be able to do. Mm-hmm. Um, mindfulness and meditation practices are also a big part of the work that I do because you don't need money or a space. Like right. that's something that you can cultivate um, during your day for two or three minutes. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. What does, um, you know, a, lot, a large part of our listening audience are educators, and of course they're working in uh, school systems. Uh, but when we think of um, trauma and, and individuals that need to heal, I think a lot of those individuals are some of our students, some of our young people, mm-hmm. as elementary school, middle school. Mm-hmm. What does a healing practice look like for that age range, mm-hmm. that age group? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I actually don't think it's much different. There are a lot of studies that show mindfulness and yoga employed within elementary and high school settings has been effective in helping students deal with trauma and conflict. Um, Healing circles also being one of that. Actually having dedicated um, staff, whether that's therapists or social workers that are accessible um, in the school is important as well. I think for children... Being able to um, be able to talk, but also like physically release is important as well. Hmm. Good, good. I I guess uh, and another question that kind of comes to mind is I was in a conversation not long ago um, when I was attending a conference and uh, the one individual expressed the importance of being separated racially and going through healing. Uh, do you see that as being important or, you know, and can you talk a little bit about mm-hmm. that and maybe the reason behind that? Mm-hmm. Yep. So uh, racial caucusing is um, a tool that is used a lot of times, particularly because in spaces that are racially mixed, when we're trying to do the work of healing black folks or people of color end up having to carry more weight. And so, one, uh, it helps give black folks and other people of color a space to not feel pressured to carry um, conversations that are about uh, our race and the ways in which white supremacy has manifest. It also gives white people a space to be open and honest um, with other white folks in a way that doesn't happen when black and people of color are in the room. And so, whereas things like white privilege and white fragility will get thrown out there and then defenses go up, when you have people separated into different caucuses, people are less apt to be defensive when those terms come up and more open to really exploring, well, what does this mean? Why am I feeling this way? You know, what have been our experiences that lead to this? So it seems like perhaps there should also be a division or a separation uh, around sex the, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. we need to do some work in our individual areas mm-hmm. in that. Yeah, in terms of gender, I think um, I, I personally do a lot of work with black women 
because there is just as much work that needs to be done uh, in terms of how patriarchy and sexism and misogyny have have manifest in ways that have been harmful. Um, And I also, you know, as we continue to become a more open society and welcoming of people who exist along the spectrum, who are gender non-conforming, those spaces become more difficult to navigate as well. And so I think having spaces where not only they're separated in terms of male, female, but spaces where gender non-conforming people can be comfortable to talk about what it it is like to exist along that spectrum is just as important. Yeah, yeah, I see that as being yeah likewise important. Not long ago, uh, I run a black male support group, and we took a group of uh, black males down to the Montgomery to the new museum on peace and justice. Okay. And uh, the museum talks a lot or shows a lot about lynching. And afterwards, we spent about six hours in the museum. We were only planning to spend three, but you get there and. You're just taken in by the energy and and what you see. And afterwards, we had a healing ceremony, and it was just, it was incredible. And many of the gentlemen that were a part expressed never getting, having that opportunity to release Mm -hmm. and to discharge. Mm -hmm. It was, you know, just lots of tears and lots of loving one another. And some of the gentlemen even found their grandfathers and Mm great-grandfathers who had been lynched on some of the... You know, and it was it was so moving, mm. and, and even the conversation coming home, a six-hour drive, it, it felt like it was two hours because we were so embellished in conversation, deep conversation around hurt, and it was just amazing. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I just came across um, a guy in Brooklyn or Harlem, New York, <laughs> who uh, just started a healing house. Really. Um, around black men and mental health. It's called Hill House, H-A-U-S. And uh, I was so excited because I really do think that those spaces continue to be far and few in between, especially for black men to be able to have that dedicated space. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you for that resource. Yes. Um, Thank you. One of the things I've noticed as we've done social justice training together is when we do move into caucuses and the people who Um, push back tend to be the white people Mm -hmm. and tend to um, feel as if, oh, no, we all belong together. I've dedicated my life to Mm -hmm. working together with black and white people. And there is this need for them to separate and for them to understand, no, your very presence Mm -hmm. is oppressive. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And People need to be respected to be able to do their work and be free mm-hmm. of to be who they are without the oppressive presence of whiteness. Mm-hmm. And our, we have a job. Mm-hmm. Our job is to, if you're going to talk in terms of healing, to heal from our internalized whiteness. Yes. And that includes recognizing that we are not always needed in every space. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there are spaces that can be improved and be whole by our absence. Oh, yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I definitely concur with that. I think um, we both belong to a a group now that's in a having a conversation around wanting to take a group of people back down to Montgomery, but it's a mixed-race group, black, white, uh, of course, male, female, young, old. And some of the conversation is that we don't want 
we, meaning African Americans, don't necessarily want to ex- have that experience with white people there, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know. And so it's just kind of interesting listening to the dynamic. What's going to become of it? I don't know. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not one making the decision, but uh, we just don't want the pats on the backs and the, you mm-hmm. know, the hugs and the tears of, mm-hmm. you know. So, you know, perhaps that's a trip that we need to take individually, you yeah. know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I yeah. mean, you can journey together, but uh, yeah, we got to go through it. Yeah. Separately. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I went to Ghana on a on a mixed trip, and when we visited some of the oh, yeah. um, castles, we split the group between white and black, um, just so that we didn't have to actually walk through the castle collectively. Um, and then you know the next day we came back together. So yeah, yeah I I do I do um, agree that having those spaces. To be able to process and experience, um, and then you know, if it's if it's important to the group, you can come back together afterwards. Right, right, mm-hmm. right, right. I see you have your book here, My Grandmother's Hands. Uh, mm-hmm. I am in the process of reading that. Mm-hmm. It is uh, extremely well received. Just an excellent uh, book. Mm-hmm. Uh, you want to speak a little bit about the book, and I think at some point the author visited this area. Or um, we're working on it. Okay. Yeah, we were trying to get him here last year, um, but we couldn't we couldn't work it out. The author's name is Resma Minaki. Okay. Um, Yeah, my grandmother's hands racialized trauma and the pathway to mending our hearts and bodies. I didn't know what was going to come up in a conversation, but I absolutely love this book. And so, just in case I wanted to be able to make some references, I have it here (laughs) with me. Um, But it 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 does a wonderful job at um, breaking down how white supremacy has kind of cultivated throughout the development of this country. but also like what that means in terms of how we have processed it within our bodies mm. and what that work um, looks like to actually um, move it throughout our bodies so that we can heal. Um, it takes it from the perspective of black folks, white folks, as well as the police body yeah. as a specific um, entity that has a, a unique configuration within um, the work to heal. Yeah. Wow, what a powerful and relevant. Yeah, and it's actually some exercises in there that mm-hmm. you know, Oh, fantastic. Yeah, so each chapter uh, includes somatic practices to take people through. Um, so by the end of it, like you really should have actually done some of your own healing. Right. Great yeah, experience. It, you know, if you see my book, I've written all over it and it's highlighted everywhere. And it's... <laughs> It's just an incre- it's incredible. It, it's I incredible. See. I highly recommend it. I yeah. highly recommend it. So you are over at the Emerging Wisdom Center, mm-hmm. and uh, tell us a little bit about the center. You, I know you all do some dynamic work over there, and all the individuals that I have met, I have just been in awe with. And I want our, our listeners to to know about the center and the work that you do. Yeah. So I am over at Empower Institute, founded by Rebecca Bennett, and I serve there as our Healing Justice Fellow, as well as artists in residence. Um, but the center is really committed to um, providing platforms where um, people are able to uh, understand their purpose 
and actively pursue it in a way that fosters their well-being and their wholeness. And so um, as fellows, we offer a different um, set of programmings each quarter that um, range across six different core areas of work that we do, which includes, um, sorry, I got to turn to it, spiritual growth and discovery, holistic health and healing, abundant living, harmonious relationships, cultural arts and expression, and community and justice. So across those six categories, you will find programming that is put on both by us, but as well as by people from the community. And so if you have something that you feel um, you want to be able to offer and it is aligned within those principles, then we welcome it um, gladly. Mm-hmm. So how would one get engaged if they wanted to attend some of your workshops? Mm-hmm. Is there a number, a website? Mm-hmm. Or? Yep, so you can find us on Facebook. You can also go to our website, um, www.empowerinstitute. That's I-N-P, empowerinstitute.com. Um, and our Facebook is also Empower Institute. So we keep our events updated. Um, we also have guides that this one currently runs through the end of April. And then new guides go out from um, May until August. And is your the uh, Institute of most of your programming is for girls and women? No, it's for everybody. Okay. There is a lot of uh, girls and women given that the staff is currently all black women. But uh, we have programming that is for men, for families, um, some that are just for adults. But it, it really ranges across uh, a spectrum. So, for example, this quarter I am doing... I've been working on a film series, so we will finally start screening this month, wow. uh, next Saturday. It's called Movement Women. It takes a look at me and six of my closest friends here who are all engaged in movement work and what that journey has been like for us in various capacities. Um So, yeah, that'll kick off. And then I will also be releasing a zine um, that is at the intersections of art, justice, and healing. So we can look to see Brittini Gray on big screen. Yeah. Wow, that's exciting. exciting. That is very exciting. That is very exciting. Um. I guess as we close this segment out, if there are some resources that you can leave with us, certainly you talked about my grandmother's hands. If there are other resources, uh, programs, conferences, uh, certainly there are the programs of the Empower Institute. But if there are anything that uh, you'd like to put out there for our readers to know about, uh, that would be helpful. Oh, boy. I mean, there are tons. Um, I do want to uplift the work that's going on with some of our other fellows. So Shiraz Gorman is getting ready to um, publicly launch Sibling Support Network, which specifically focuses on um, the siblings who have lost um, a brother or sister to violent crime. And so um, in the next couple of months, you'll start to see that um, opportunities for people to engage in that work. Uh, Pretty excited for that. Uh, E. Nicole has a series that 
I am helping to plan and facilitate that is around sex trafficking in our region. The last one that I want to offer for people is myself and another fellow, Lauren Buck, do a womanist gathering um, once a month called Lewa Fire Ballet that um, really focuses on kind of politicizing um, the Bible in a way that leads to a liberative lens um, for women. So those are some local resources that people can actively get engaged with right now. Okay, okay, excellent. This has been Tony Neal, your host. And Deborah Bowman, today's guest host and podcast producer and director. Bringing you Just Talk Educational Equity. Special thanks to our guest, Rutini Gray, for joining us today and providing us all with information, with her wisdom around the topic of healing. We're going to continue our conversation with her in our next episode. We appreciate that you have joined with us today and invite you to share your comments, questions, and suggestions on our website at EEC. That's the number four, justice.com. And leave us an email there on our contact page. Also, we're asking if you enjoyed today's podcast, please find us on iTunes and leave us a rating. You can help other people find us that way, and we appreciate your support. Just Talk has been brought to you by Educational Equity Consultants, a company that provides training to build the capacity of individuals, schools, and other organizations to address racism in ways that enable all people to reclaim their inherent intelligence and nobility. Recording, editing, music, and logo provided by Alvin Zamudio. So if you're a teacher or school leader, a student, a parent, or a community member concerned about social justice, please remember, Just Just Talk. Talk.